Okay, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, because the, the scripture references that we look at will be on the screen uh, behind me. We're going to be looking a little bit at Luke chapter 11 for the remainder of our time uh, this morning. And so in just a moment, I'm going to read Luke chapter 11, verse 1 uh, through to verse 13. Okay, here we go. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? At least one of Jesus' disciples wants to learn how to pray like Jesus prayed. That's the whole point of having a rabbi. You'd follow a rabbi in order to learn, to be taught and to grow and to more closely recognize more closely following that person's footsteps. We're told here that that's what uh, John did with his disciples. He taught them how to pray. Um, And now they're coming to Jesus, and yet again, they've witnessed him praying. And that had a profound effect on them. And this is one of the things that Luke, in his gospel, is particularly keen to shed light on. Jesus' prayer life. We know that even when Jesus was baptized, it says, Jesus was praying. And there are other times when he was praying uh, before big decisions. He knows he's going to choose 12 of his disciples to become uh, apostles, be this close group um, of people that he's training up. So what does he do? He goes up a mountainside and prays all night. And when he comes down, he knows from God whom he's to uh, call to follow him in that way. There are other times when at the height of the popularity of his ministry... What does Jesus do? He steals away. And the Bible says, uh, not just in Luke's gospel, in other gospels as well, he, he went to lonely and desolate places to pray. 
Other occasions when he, he prayed all night. Other occasions when he, he took bread, just a small amount of bread, and prayed, looked to heaven and broke it. And, and the disciples have seen him praying, and they are struck by it. They're impressed by it. And one wonders also if, if they have the question in mind, not just, how can I pray like Jesus, but almost, how can we follow in this guy's footsteps at all? Uh, maybe they were asking with eager expectation. Maybe they were asking in an excited way. Maybe they were asking just in awe. Wow. Look at what Jesus is is like. They want to be like him. And so they're asking, teach us. Teach us how to pray. They've seen him pray. And also they've seen the fruit of it. They've seen what happens when he prays. They've seen what happens immediately afterwards. Jesus walking on water. Or Jesus breaking bread and it multiplies uh, before them. Jesus healing the sick. Jesus casting out unclean spirits and so on. So that's one of Luke's uh, particular interests is Jesus praying. One of his other interests is uh, the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who was enabling Jesus to do everything he did in his uh, three-year ministry. And so again, Luke wants to bring special attention to the Holy Spirit. So it's in Luke's Gospel that we find out uh, more detail about how he was even conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, an angel came to Mary and said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to conceive God's Son. And then... Uh, Jesus is baptized, and when Jesus is coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him and, uh, and rests on him, doesn't leave him. And then we see from that point onwards, Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Jesus being led by the Spirit, even when that involved going into a wilderness uh, for 40 days and 40 nights and fasting, it says he went there, led by the Holy Spirit, and... Uh, having gone through that time of trial and testing, he comes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He goes to the synagogue, he opens up the word of God, and he turns to Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to preach good news. Um, all the way through, we see the demonstration of, of Jesus dependent on the Holy Spirit, praying with the power of the Holy Spirit, ministering with the Holy Spirit, and teaching the disciples as well about what's to come. So we see those two things, and here we meet disciples asking this question, Lord, teach us to pray. You see the connection, the passage begins with prayer, it concludes with the Holy Spirit. I want to spend a few moments uh, looking at this question, how do we pray like Jesus? How do we learn? to pray like Jesus prayed. And perhaps, like I say, there's that wider question as well. How do we do anything following in Jesus' footsteps? How do we live our lives as disciples of Jesus? So we'll focus on prayer. We'll come back to the wider question towards the end. Firstly, in answer to that question, how do we pray like Jesus? With personal reverence. Or, it's personal and we are also to be reverent. Jesus gives a pattern of prayer, verses 2 to 4, that we'll be familiar with. Perhaps we're more familiar with the version which is slightly more filled out in Matthew's Gospel. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, Matthew adds a few other uh, parts into it. Um, 
Luke has his uh, recollection of it here. It could be something that Jesus taught on many occasions. And uh, it's something that we can pray word for word. It's also something to lead us, kind of subject by subject, if you like. Um, And this would not have been unusual, wouldn't have been a strange thing for a rabbi at this time in Israel to be teaching his followers how to pray. And there'd be some terms in here that would be at least familiar with them. But there's a few things here in what Jesus said, which before the disciples would flash across the sky like a fork of lightning. It would just grab their attention, maybe shock them, maybe make them jump, maybe scare them. It's just so different from what they've seen or heard previously. And one of those, uh, if you like, shocking, attention-grabbing features is the very first word. When you pray, say, Father. This was Jesus' example. Where This is what the disciples have seen all the time. There's another occasion in John's Gospel when uh, Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, uh, who a few days earlier, a close friend of his, who passed away. And there's lots of grief, and people are wondering, Jesus, why didn't you come sooner? You knew it was desperate. And Jesus comes to the tomb... The tomb is opened, and what does Jesus say? Thank you, Father, you've heard me. I know you always hear me. I've said this for the benefit of those who listen. Is this close connection with God addressing him as Father, which was an absolute shock to the religious leaders of the day? They could have said in a more academic sense, we know we have God as our Father. God has fathered the nation, but in a far more distant way. There was not the expectation of this kind of intimacy. And we find at the end of Mark's gospel, just before uh, Jesus is to be arrested, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying. And it's another occasion where Jesus is spending the night praying, and we find that the disciples are heavy with sleep. But they're awake enough to realize how he prays again. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Even in that moment of utter anguish and dread, he was praying in those terms. Abba, Father. And this is what was radically offensive to so many people at the time. that He was calling calling God his his Father in that way. Some of you might be familiar uh, with a book written by a lady called Belquis Sheikh. Uh, a wealthy lady who grew up in Pakistan and uh, had a very uh, rich, luxurious lifestyle. Her father had been uh, a minister in government and, uh, and she was in a very comfortable situation, but her life started to become uncomfortable. Uh, she was left by her husband and at a time of turmoil then, she uh, had greater experience and came across uh, Christians, people following Jesus and the Bible. It describes, her story describes some amazing things. How she'd be, she had dreams and in those dreams she met a man called John the Baptist before she'd read the Bible and ever heard that there was somebody called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. And so in her, through dreams and through conversations and through eventually then turning to a Bible herself, she starts to meet with Jesus. And she uh, is speaking to somebody she knows who, who is a follower of Jesus. And she says, well, how, how should I pray? And 
Uh, This uh, friend says, speak to him as though you would your father. Well, she had this close relationship with somebody high up in government who was her father. And her whole way of thinking is radically reorientated as she realizes that's the way I can come to God. I can, I can come with that level of closeness. It's that, it's personal. And so she tells her story of coming to faith in Jesus. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the things that the Holy Spirit uh, is working in our lives. We can see in, in Romans chapter 8 uh, and verse 15, Paul writes there, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And on he on he goes. But the work of the Holy Spirit in, in our spirit is to powerfully remind every follower of Jesus that we are sons of God, that we can approach God the way that Jesus approached God. Abba, Father, that level of personal closeness. But and another remarkable thing about this prayer is the language that it's in. That won't strike us as unusual because as we read our Bible, if we're reading an English translation, the whole text is in English. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, when you pray, say, and then everything that follows is in Aramaic. Now why should that interest us? The priestly, religious language of the day for people growing up in Israel was Hebrew. If you were going to pray to God, you had to learn Hebrew and speak to him in those terms. But Jesus uses the the more everyday language of the streets to say, when you pray, say Abba. It's an Aramaic word. In many nations in the Middle East, that might still be the first word that people learn when they're a baby. Abba, Papa, Father. And Jesus is saying... You can address God in in that everyday language. This is what would be remarkable for followers of Jesus. It's like, you don't have to learn another language to follow God. That's what paved the way for the Bible to be translated. That's why we don't have to read it in Latin. That's why we don't have to learn Hebrew and Greek necessarily. It's like, we can read it in our own language. You don't have, wherever you're from... You don't have to learn another language to relate with God. And it's not as though God has some uh, divine personal assistant who sits just in front of his office. That as every prayer comes in, kind of translates it. Translates it into English. God doesn't need prayers to be translated into English. God doesn't need, doesn't need any help. <laughs> deciphering our prayers. That's what would have grabbed their attention. They were being encouraged to pray in a simple, direct, personal way to Almighty God. Not babbling on and on like the pagans did. So elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said, now don't pray like the pagans, babbling away, thinking that they're heard because of their many words. 
maybe even then there would be this concern that if you were kind of uh, meeting some dignitary or a king or an emperor, you had to make sure you, uh, you made the right address, you spoke to them in the right way. You remembered every title, every name, every achievement of this particular uh, authority figure. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't have to babble away like that. Call him Father. Yeah, call him Sovereign Lord, Mighty One. Yeah, of course he has many uh, descriptions of his character. But we approach him simply, directly, in the name of Jesus. We call him Father. That's personal and it's reverence. Why do I say that? The English word daddy just doesn't cut it because that's only really personal. It's not really reverent. Abba was to be the word that a child would use to speak to their dad and also the word that a student would speak to their master. It's one and the same. So notice that I'm not going to go through the prayer in loads of detail. But as we come before Almighty God, we're saying, Father, what's your kingdom about? What's your will? What's your agenda? What's your name? I'm going to start there. I'm going to start with praise. I'm going to start with your kingdom. I'm going to pray that personally. Oh God, let your kingdom come in me. Make me more righteous, peaceful and joyful by the Holy Spirit. Because that's what your kingdom is about. Now Lord, I'm praying that you would do that for me. I'm praying you do that for my family. I'm praying that you would do that for us as a church. I'm praying that you would do that for us as a nation. I'm praying that you would do that for us as a world. Oh God, let your kingdom come. It's what's grabbed our attention, but notice as it goes on, we're also praying about our needs and recognizing what they are, about our need for bread, our need of provision, our need of forgiveness, our need of help that God would lead us. We know our own frailties. We know that we can stumble into temptation. We know that our hearts can deceive us and drag us away. So when we pray, we're saying, oh God, lead me in a righteous path. I want to follow you. I know my own weakness. That's why I'm asking for your help. So it's personal reverence. How else are we to pray like Jesus? We pray like Jesus with shameless persistence. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus goes on to tell a funny story, which again was not unusual. Jesus often used parables to to make his point and help people to get uh, to grips with what he was teaching and, and what he was talking about in terms of the kingdom of God. And we have to do some work to imagine the scene. Suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says, what do we need to know to understand this? Imagine a world with no corner shop that's open all hours. No Aldi, no Waitrose, no Tesco Express, no Premier, no nothing like that. In this, in your village, somebody in your household every day gets up and makes a fresh batch of bread. That would be sufficient for the family's needs for that day. Give us today our daily bread. Well, that was their reality. It was, it was made, it was kneaded, it was baked every day. So if a friend comes to you at midnight, the chances are you don't have any left, if you've kind of judged it right. But in the day, there was an expectation you're always ready. 
and you always demonstrate hospitality. Someone could knock on the door at any time and you're to welcome them in. You're not to turn them away. That would be an outrage. That would be uh, uh, a slur on you, your household and perhaps the village that you were from if you turn someone away. So a friend has come to you at midnight... You have no resources left for the day, but you do have an obligation to care for them and set something before them. What are you going to do? What are you thinking at that point? Well, as the as Jesus' story goes on, we kind of catch the drift. He goes to somebody else. So Jesus is saying, would you have the nerve to go and knock on your neighbor's door at midnight and say, give me something? I've got, I've, got a, I've got a guest. They've come on a long journey and they're here already or they've arrived late, who knows. But um, here they are, I've got to deal with it. Would you have the nerve to knock on the door? Again, we've got to imagine the scene. I don't know how many bedrooms your house has. Uh, this scene is of a house which is just one room. The family live together They cook together, they eat together, they sleep together. Everything happens in this same room. And so it's midnight. What's happened? Well, the whole family has settled down for the night. They've gone to sleep. And so the neighbor says, don't bother me. Can't get up now. We're all asleep. Even if I wanted to get up, I'd have to to get everybody else up. The whole household would have to wake up in order for us to find the bread and give it to you. So what would you do at that point? Oh, okay. I am, I was a bit cheeky, wasn't I? I'm so sorry. Uh, you just stay put. I'll, I don't know what I'll do. Uh, but it's not your problem, so forget about it. Um, maybe knock on somebody else's door. But look, everybody's going to be in the same situation, aren't they? It's midnight. People have smaller houses, and that's just the situation. So what's going to happen? Well, I think there's a strange kind of encouragement in this. For the person knocking on the door, aha, yes. He didn't say, I don't have any bread. There is reason for encouragement. He's got some, he has some food. He has, they have what I need. So all I have to do is shamelessly keep going. And there'll come a point when my request is answered. You notice that's what Jesus says. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Let's relate this to prayer. Sometimes in prayer, we might rejoice in being friends with God, but then that kind of pushes us into a very passive way of thinking. If God wants to bless me, if God has resources that I need, then I guess he will just provide it. Because of friendship. Jesus is saying, yeah, well, he, he's knocked on the door of a friend, but it wasn't friendship that got him out of bed. It was boldness. It was shameless persistence. He's got what I need. And he is a friend. So I'm going to just keep knocking. I'm just going to keep calling out. And there'll come a point when I'm given what I, what I need. 
Does that describe how we pray? If we're praying like Jesus, there'll be something shamelessly persistent about it. In other words, we're not just playing that cruel game where you knock on someone's door and you run away. And so by the time they've got to the door and opened up, they look around and think, well, there's, there's no one there. Oh, that's a cruel joke. Or, what's happened? Sometimes we can pray in that way. And sometimes there are ways of, you might have been taught to pray in, in, in this way. In other words, you gotta, if, you, if you're going to pray with faith, so only pray at once. If you keep praying it, you're going to like jinx your prayer request. Because it's demonstrating that you don't have faith. So, it's like, with much trembling and trepidation, we pray once and then, and then what do we do? Either we're super despondent, we just go away thinking he's not answered. Or, we have to kind of declare something by faith. Now we're just thanking God that he's heard us and he's answered us and it's all happened. And we might just be living, quite frankly, in cloud cuckoo land. And you've got to keep knocking. You've got to keep shamelessly persisting. Seek the Lord. That's what we were looking at a couple of weeks ago. It's time to seek the Lord. What? Until he comes. There might be like a little lag time. But like, he's coming. I know he's coming. So I'm going to seek the Lord. I know he's got bread. I know he has provision. I know that I have friendship with the Almighty. I, and therefore I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep knocking. And, and Jesus emphasizes the point. So I say to you in verse 9, that's not what he said. So I say to you, just happens to be in verse 9, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Uses three actions to talk about this shameless persistence. And if you think about it, asking is one thing. Seeking is even a bit more proactive, and knocking is even more proactive than that. If you, if you see the kind of uh, the pattern as it goes through, and to emphasise the point, Jesus repeats it again in verse ten: "For everyone who asks receives; he who seeks finds; and to him who knocks, the door will be opened." Now we have to deal with an obvious question at this point. Does that mean that we always get what we ask for? Well, it depends if we're praying in God's will and in Jesus' name. Um, but what could have happened in this scenario? You, please lend me three loaves of bread. Would he have complained if the door opened and out came a few bagels and a crumpet? I, I, I don't know. I would have think, think that's still provision. It's not exactly what I asked for. It's not three. It's two, but they're bigger. You know then, thank you Lord, that's wonderful. I was asking for this, but actually what I received was slightly different. And of course, we find out later on, well even a human father, if we ask for an egg, we won't get a scorpion and so on. And sometimes, without us realising, we may be asking for something that the Lord knows would actually do us harm, or it wouldn't help us. Will he give us something that will do us harm? No. He'll give us what we need and what is good. 
And sometimes as we pray, there's some lessons going on in the inside. It's testing our motives. It's helping us to pray uh, in God's will, in accordance with God's will, and in Jesus' name. And as we pray, we're learning. And maybe our prayer requests are changing, because as we pray, God is teaching us. So it's not just a guarantee that we get whatever we want. But it is this encouragement that to, to pray persistently, not in an uh, overly British, polite way. I'm not quite sure whether politeness really connects with Britishness anymore. But in some ways, we can just be, oh, no, no, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to bother you. you know, we can be like walking backwards as soon as we ask for something, <laughs> rather than just a bit more straightforward. Can I have a drink, please? <laughs> um, we, we can pricey our requests with, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. That's just rubbish. Just direct, straightforward requests. Repeated. But here's another question which might not be so obvious, but in some ways we might be thinking. Why should I want to pray persistently, shamelessly, asking, seeking, knocking, if God responds like the grouchy neighbour? Go away. Don't bother me. And so it's important that we consider that question because when Jesus tells a funny story, he's making one point. The point that he is making is pray with that shameless abandon, as it were. Keep persisting. He's not saying that that neighbor massively represents God. But we could draw the wrong conclusion and so shrink back from God rather than pursue him in prayer and that's why Jesus goes on to give if you like one more mini parable or illustration you see as well as praying with personal reverence and shameless persistence to pray like Jesus we have to pray with childlike confidence verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, that's where he begins the story, uh, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So here's the point where Jesus asks us a question. Which of you fathers, if your son, if your child asked you for something good, would give something harmful? It all comes back to who we think God is and what we've understood him to be like. Let's just be clear. God is not a grumpy neighbor. He is a generous and kind father. And if we know how to give good gifts, even though we are evil, how much more will a loving, generous, gracious, heavenly, almighty, everlasting father give? It's it's in his nature. It's already his desire to give, to provide, 
to help. If we do not believe that God is a good, loving and perfect Heavenly Father who is generous and gracious, if we do not believe that, we probably won't be praying. If we have understood that God in heaven is generous and gracious Father, then we will pray boldly and persistently expecting answers, expecting provision. If I don't believe it, if I think of him as distant or absent or cruel or uncaring, I will struggle to pray meaningfully about anything. I'm already walking backwards as soon as a word is on my lips. Because I'm already disposed to doubt that God cares or is interested in me. God is generous. We might expect that verse to continue. You know, if, if you, even though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts? That's what we would be expecting, how we'd be expecting the, the sentence to unfold, but it unfolds in this way as well. How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit? He's giving something so good. This is God's desire. If we are thinking, oh, God, I just I want to be more like Jesus. I want to pray like Jesus. I want to love people like Jesus. I want to see people healed. I want to see demons flee. I want to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in my own life. I want to be righteous. I want to be joyful. I want to be peaceful. I want to serve you, Lord, with my hands. I want to walk in your footsteps, O God. That's my desire. If you desire that, do you think that your heavenly Father doesn't? If you're asking God for something good, do you think he's going to withhold it? Or do you think that it will give you something, um, an unpleasant, nasty shock? Instead, well, I asked for the Holy Spirit, but what I got was, I asked for help to honour him, but what I got was, I want to make a stand in the workplace, but what happened was, and if we're already walking back in our prayers, we're shrinking away from him, what, we've, we've missed the first point. Father. And that's the work that the Holy Spirit does. It's helped us to realise, I come to him, and I, I can call him Abba, Father. There was something so profound in that for the disciples. So it's true, I think that's the reason why the Bible is, can be translated into multiple different languages, is because Jesus taught the disciples how to pray in Aramaic. But do you notice, that word Abba keeps pro- cropping up, even in the English Bible, and even in the Greek New Testament. There was something so profound about Jesus calling God Abba, they decided to keep it in. Because that's what Jesus said. Abba. So we have this spirit inside us, testifying to our spirit that we can say the same thing. That's why there is a time... Not to ask the Lord to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Because 
Sometimes this is what I think happens. People ask God to fill them with the Holy Spirit whilst doubting that God is a good, loving, heavenly Father. And if that happens, I'm waiting to see what happens in order to see if God loves me or not. If there's some big experience, if there are some, you know, if I've fallen to the floor, if I'm shaking around like a leaf, or if I'm praying in tongues, I could say, oh, hallelujah, now that I, I know God loves me now. But if I pray to receive the Holy Spirit, if someone lays their hands on me to receive the Holy Spirit, and not, none of us are actually totally convinced, then if it's not from a place of faith, but it's rather from a place of doubt, I'm... I'm overanalyzing my experiences in that moment. And maybe I'm seeing how somebody else is responding and some crazy stuff is kicking off for them. And I draw the wrong conclusion. God doesn't love me because I'm not feeling something. And God does love them because they are feeling something. That's why I say there is a time not to pray to receive the Holy Spirit. Obviously, that's not where we stop. If that's the case, we go to the scripture see what kind of father is God what is he like am I completely convinced in the loving generous and gracious overflowing abundance of a heavenly father and when the answer is yes we say come and fill us with the Holy Spirit Lord because I know whatever happens I'm going to receive something good an abundance of gifts this bubbling brook of living water emerging. Maybe, yeah, gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, all manner of things that the Holy Spirit wants to bring up. Why? Because I know He's a Heavenly Father, and I'm asking so I will receive. I'm seeking so that I will find. I'm knocking, and the door will be opened, because I'm not praying to a grumpy neighbor who doesn't care. I'm praying to a Heavenly Father who does that's why when God wants to do something special he starts stirring his people to pray with faith it doesn't become a competition it doesn't become comparing my experience with someone else to see if I register in God's kingdom if I know the truth that truth will set me free to receive And the Lord, he will give good gifts. If I know it, do you know it? Uh, There's one of the letters in the Bible that finishes, I think it's 2 Corinthians, with, uh, well let me just turn there, it's 2 Corinthians. Um, With this, in in just a few moments we'll we'll pray, so perhaps the band could already be coming up. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see, that's where it starts. That's why we have relationship with God. It's because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to us, who laid his life down for us and is an extended an invitation to us to come into the kingdom of God. 
because of his grace. Undeserved, unmerited, overflowing grace. By receiving that grace, we come into relationship with God the Father and we discover the love of God. And when Jesus returned to glory, he said the Father and and the Son sent the Holy Spirit that we might know fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We can't say, thank you Jesus for your grace, jump over the fact of God's love as a heavenly Father and have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. It's all three. It's all the way through. Oh God, I want fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Does that grip you? I want to be like Jesus. I want to learn to be like Jesus. I want to walk like Jesus. I want to pray like Jesus. I want to love like Jesus. I want to live like Jesus. Isn't it wonderful that he has brought us into relationship with a loving Heavenly Father who gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Let's ask in faith. Let's expect. Let's pray in faith to a wonderful God who knows how to give the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and worship God together.